Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop with a focus on the early years, and we also have a very special guest with us, Kendrick Dial. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Music History Project. We are so excited and might I even say psyched to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop using the interviews we have gathered over the years for the NAM Oral History Program. We have interviewed dozens of DJs over the years, and I'm just so glad that we can showcase some of those in this uh, series of podcasts. And to do this, we have a very, very special guest today. Kendrick Dial is here. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. 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 Thank you for having me. Please tell us a little bit of your background, if you don't mind. Uh, so I'm the front man for a band called The Lyrical Groove. We started out in, out of the spoken word scene and then added a live instrumentation. Uh, so I get to work with some wonderful musicians um, and have a vocalist that sings with our group as well. And then somehow I transitioned, I became a producer as well. So got into creating my own music and whatnot. So, um, so yeah, so then, and I also teach a history of hip hop class at San Diego State. And been fortunate enough to win a couple of San Diego Music Awards. A uh, little bit of uh, our sound is a blend of hip hop and soul and jazz, so it takes all these different elements, just like hip hop does, uh, and brings them to life. So um, I'm excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Our pleasure. This is exciting. Very, very cool. Well, I thought at the very beginning we should talk about the very beginning. And to do that, we have a very short clip from our great interview with Grandmaster Kaz. Uh, explaining how he feels hip-hop started. Let's play that. I mean, if you want a reason why hip-hop started, I mean, the conditions that existed at the time, you know, when hip-hop started were, were very dismal. You know what I mean? You know, the city finances and was at an all-time low, I mean, from the 60s all the way through the 70s. You know what I mean? New York was like Beirut, you know, in certain places. And, um, all the programs was taken away, after-school programs, music programs at school. They took all the instruments and everything. So, like uh, my man Lord Jamar said, we took the only thing in the house that made music, the turntable, and made it an instrument. I really appreciate this because I, even when, as I teach my class, I teach it from a very social dynamics point of view in terms of the the culture of the city, the culture of the people, the socioeconomic status, uh, and those type of things. Because when we think about hip-hop, it comes from a, a place of, of protest, in a sense, of terms of providing a voice, providing a sound for an underrepresented community. And so I, I think that is something that we have to remember as we're reflecting on the beginning of hip-hop. I'm not sure if we always see that dynamic play out, but that's also why it resonates with so many different cultures around the world, because it is about lifting up the voice of the unheard and looking at the social plight of a lot of different um, people and cities and, and cultures and whatnot. So I, I think that's something that we, we must always kind of bring to the table in terms of our appreciation of hip hop. 
without a doubt. I, I think that's a great, great way of thinking about it. And maybe at this early stage, we can talk a little bit about the four major elements of, of hip hop. Sure. Should we do that? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we can actually, you know, add the fifth one too. Okay, let's do so, that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think one of the dynamics is when we think about what started, you know, first, right? Uh, and I think today we're kind of focusing on the DJ. And a lot of people might be surprised to know that the DJ is kind of like more integral, had a very integral part at the beginning. Because, you know, the MC, which is mainly highlighted today, wasn't the main focal point. And so, you know, there's the DJ, there's the, the MCing, there's graffiti, there's uh, b-boying, b-girling, and then, you know, the knowledge piece. And that's the piece that uh, for a lot of, I think, representation of terms of how we experience hip-hop today, we don't always see that piece represented as prominently. But that was very much a key component to the development of hip-hop. Absolutely. And that first wave, as I call them, of, of DJs are very proud of that last element. You right. know, it's very important that the history is straight, right? right. You know, it's it's um, there for generations to realize who was there, why they were there, what they right. were doing. And I, I totally agree with you on that. That's fantastic. Um, so August 11th, 1973, in the Bronx, this young girl goes to her older brother who has got some records we know him as cool herc hey can you come spin some records for my party and for some reason and i think for some good reason we point to that as the 50th anniversary now some people might argue that people were spinning records before then right um but cool had a different way of doing things uh, he added different sounds he was adding different feelings and colors and as a result, I think that's why we point to that day. So next we're going to hear several people talking about DJ Cool Herc, Grandmaster Kaz, Christy Z, and Cool DJ Red Alert. My influences as a DJ, um, I, I have to say Cool Herc because Cool Herc was the DJ. He was the hip-hop DJ. And he's the person that if you wanted to do this, you aspired to be as big as Cool Herc. You know what I mean? Or, or in the circle of Cool Herc, or you know what I mean? What it seems to be is that Herc is the first DJ in hip hop, before it was called hip hop, what he was trying to do was extend the breaks. And um, from some stories it wasn't seamless, but he kept taking the breaks and doing that for the dancers. And that was the first time I believe Flash, Grandmaster Flash ever saw that. So he said he was inspired and he went and tried to make that seamless. So Flash doing that on, on top of his other contributions like cutting and his theories and everything were huge. And then eventually Grand Wizard Theodore with the invention of the scratch. And um, then, you know, there were major innovations on the scratch that happened throughout the years um, but the next major technique I feel that happened for DJing for battle DJs particularly is uh, what Steve D created um, founder of the X-Men crew when he created uh, beat juggling which he was calling the funk and and that was the most recent major major like you can't it be it would be weird to go to a DJ battle and not see both scratching and beat juggling happen so that those are the majors and of course there's transforming and every everything else that developed out of that um 
the history on that is still, uh, it's different claims. But allegedly, um, from Philly, DJ Cash Money and Jazzy Jeff saw Grand Wizard Rasheen do what would eventually become transforming. And they took it and blew it up from there. I went to school in the Bronx. I'm, I was raised in Harlem, but I went to school up in the Bronx. So during the time I was in the Bronx, I used to always hear so much about this particular person named Herc, Herc, Herc. At the same time that was going on, I was always hearing about the disco craze that was lower Manhattan um, in New York City. So me sneaking down there, where I'm not supposed to be in, but putting on my, once again, my brother, he's influenced me. I'm putting on his clothes, make myself try to look older, sneaking in the clubs and listening to the sounds of dance, disco, and R&B. But coming up on weekend, like a Saturday, and listening to the sounds of Cool Hunk. So I caught the bug by learning the difference of both of them as they influenced me from the start at home that led me into what I was seeing they was doing that I had interest to follow on that. What Herc was doing was playing different sounds, obscure sounds. Uh, of course, he'll play some of the R&B and some of the disco that was favorable, uh, as well as some of the artists that we all adore coming up to James Brown and, and other funk bands. But he went after a lot of obscure sounds that you wasn't hearing nowhere else. You wasn't hearing in the, in the streets. You wasn't hearing in radio. You wasn't hearing it um, in the clubs. And I think that really caught our attention. And it's the way how he positioned it of learning how to play one behind another that build, build the interest for us to more in, be in flow. And when I'm looking at the energy behind what he played, how people vibing to it, how people getting into it, even if somebody just standing on the side, bopping their head, or a couple of people just dancing until it led to the B-Boys getting on the dance floor and start doing their footwork, which I saw was interesting the first time. So in putting together this podcast, we really wanted to focus on some of the pioneers. And in the Bronx on the East Coast, there were some amazing developments that happened in a very short period of time by some amazing musicians. You know, we don't often think of hip-hop DJs as musicians, but after this podcast, you're going to agree with us that absolutely very musically skilled, some of them with musical theory, people like uh, Johnny Juice, very deep in music theory. Uh, I would call him a musicologist. Um, and then Grandmaster Flash with his um, electronic background really brought forth a higher level of DJing and creating his own equipment as some others did. So this is some of the points that we're hoping to um, relay to you when we talk about these pioneers. They weren't just people on the street doing something for fun. Of course they were, but what came out of it was amazing because of the people who brought their skill set to this genre. I think uh, a piece of what you're highlighting is the dynamic that, you know, even when you go back to like jazz and blues, a lot of it was based off the feel. Right. And when you think about hip hop, hip hop came from the field mm. and the fact that they were able to use this different type of technology to bring in the sounds and, and do a lot of like music by ear, which a lot of great musicians do. And so 
to be able to really understand and appreciate what they were actually bringing to the table when they were just, you know, going by sound, playing by ear, and creating and mixing all these different sounds, I think really gives a testament to to why it has the longevity that it has. No doubt. And there was something to express, right? There was something there that was unique to their area that they felt they needed to express. And I love that it came in a music form, just like jazz, just like the blues, right? right? I mean, I think that's an amazing connection. Thanks for saying that. So let's start with uh, Grandmaster Kaz. We heard about him. uh, We heard from him a little earlier, uh, but let's focus on a couple of his comments about the early days. Uh, We're going to start with a great segment of him explaining how the microphone became a big part of hip hop. What's up, y'all? It's the grandest of them all. Even your mama fall for Grandmaster Kaz. I'm from the legendary Cold Crush Brothers. You know what I mean? I'm hip hop day one. Day one, okay? I'm known throughout the world as one of the greatest MCs to ever grace the planet, but little do most people know that I'm a DJ. I started out as a DJ. Before the microphone even came into play, I had two of these. Well, not two of these, but (laughs) I had two turntables, okay? And uh, every DJ had to have a mic, had to have a microphone to make announcements. You know what I mean? It wasn't about rhyming and rapping in the beginning. It was like, um, Christy. If you're in the house, please go to the door. Your father's here. Christy, your father's here. Please go to the door. And then the music come back on. The rest of us keep partying. Well, Christy's going home, but the rest of us keep partying. And that's what the mic was for. So I know a couple of people probably got up and talked about the the integration of the microphone with DJing, but it's essential. It's essential to rock a party. All right, if you're just playing records and there's no interaction with you and the audience or whatever, whatsoever, you want to let the music speak for itself, fine. A lot of DJs do that. But in the beginning, we were introducing new music to people, so we had to kind of coach them along with it. And then once they felt the energy of it, the mic became a part. For me, the mic is just important as the turntables when you DJing. Okay, it'll save you a lot of times to <laughs> make mistakes or whatever, or just pauses or segues from records to record. Crowd participation, shout outs, all that. It's integral. But um, I did something special. Um, I don't got a name for it, but I just used to change the words around the, the, the songs. Ever since I was a kid, when I was little, I would hear a song and I would, I would learn it and I would know all the lyrics to it. And then I would just throw in my own words just to make it look or, or seem a little more creative. And um, that helped me out when it came to hip hop. Let me tell you something. I DJed um, in house parties on BSRs. Transportation for my set was two or three cars. I carried amps in the rain and speakers in the snow. I spent more money than I made when I did a show. I played in clubs in the winter without no heat and dressing rooms with rats running under my feet. The blackout in 77 when the city went dark, I had my whole sound system outside in a park. I paid my dues, I'm a vet, so don't even try me. I've been in party rocking records, watching bullets go by me. Sparkle Dixie, Ecstasy, Garage, or the Barn, the T-Connection, the Rennie, the list goes on, the Black Door, the PAL, Bronx River Center. When you first heard a rap, that's where you went to see vets like me, GMC, the L-O-R-D, or R-A-P, baby. <laughs> I've been doing this for a minute now, okay? 
But I don't I don't trace the books back. I don't go to the back and say, yeah, let me see how many things I did first that I can go maim every people. It's not about that. It's just about keep contributing to the culture, whatever it is, whatever it is. Just keep giving what you got. Give it to the next person. Let them give it to the next person, you know? As far as ghostwriting is concerned, I've been writing for other people as long as I've been writing because as long as other people have been, you know, with me or down with me, my writing level is way beyond everybody else's so a lot of times we'll get on and i'll you know and then everybody else will be like yo who yo they whack yo they, they it's not that they whack it's just that i'm so good i make you know they look you know what i mean so a lot of times i'll write stuff for them so we all can sound that good or we all can be up on a certain level. You know what I mean? So I've always ghostwritten. I mean, everybody in my crew, you know, if I didn't sit down and like really like have class, you know, like in the lunchroom and stuff, we beating on tables and they writing rhymes and bringing them to me. I'm like, yeah, all right, that's cool. But you can't say such and such and such and this and that and such. That has to rhyme with this and such. So basically, that's I've always done that. I've always done that. I mean, the list is incredible as far as people I've written for, but a lot of time it's not like, here, here, take that, here, hold that. You know what I mean? It ain't like I want, I want, I want royalties off it or nothing. You know, here, hold that, yo. So a lot of people, when you see them sound like incredibly good, that's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, of course, I can't do an interview without talking about that, all right? But basically, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Big Bang Hank was the biggest, you know, case of my ghostwriting, you know what I mean? Um, I wrote all his lyrics for Sh uh, the Sugar Hill song, Rapper's Delight. So all the C-A-S-N, the O-V-A, and the rest is F-L-Y, that's me. That was my name. And instead of changing the rhyme around to spell his name, he just said it the way I used to say it for myself. I'm the grandmaster with the three MCs, okay? I wrote Superman flying through the air with pantyhose, okay? So, I mean, that's the biggest example of ghostwriting I've done. But I've, you know, written and recorded with, you know, hundreds of artists uh, over my time. And some of my best stuff I, I wrote for other people. Do you have any regrets about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I have regrets about, you know, not having the knowledge to be able to, you know, business-wise take care of what, you know, what, what, what could have been really one of the most lucrative, you know, things in my career, right? That if I would have, if I'd have known, if only I'd have known, you know what I mean? Uh, but then again, there's no telling uh, um, to say that things would have worked out that way if I had known because it was like, oh, you know? Okay, well we can't use we can't, we can't use nothing you got you know okay so they would get go to somebody else that they could probably dupe and get away with you know taking their credit for for their work so I don't know things work out the way they do for a certain reason you know what I mean I'm just glad to have been a part of something that monumental it just adds to my resume you know what I mean be it in the forefront or in the background I've been part of mostly everything big in hip hop ever since the beginning. You know, so as long as I can say that, I'm, I sleep good at night. So actually, one of the things that, that really stands out for me is is kind of hearing the story and, and thinking about the early onset of hip hop and how 
I think for lack of a better word, unregulated. It mm. was it was really like a, a wild, wild west, if you will, in terms of to creativity. And many of the, you know, either laws or policies around regulating, you know, music hadn't come up yet, you know, because they hadn't been had to deal with when talk about sampling and, and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it downs my heart to hear that experience, especially as a writer, as a mm. producer, to, to not get credit for something that, you know, has such a, a phenomenal impact in terms of the culture. So um, I, I think as we are looking at, you know, this, the early years, it's, it's really about recognize, like, how they really were shifting how we as people, consumers, artists, are even taking in this whole new genre of music, uh, which is another reason why I have a level of great uh, appreciation for Grandmaster Flash um, in terms of what he did in terms of just engineering, you know, a turntable and some of those dynamics. So uh, I'm excited for us to hear a little bit more about him as well. Right on. In fact, that's a great segue. Let's get right into Grandmaster Flash. I think probably my passion for vinyl, which is on music on vinyl, probably started with my dad. You know, my dad was a avid collector of vinyl, and um, he was big on jazz, like Glenn Miller, Artie Shore, Miles Davis. You know, that was his big thing. And you know, the rule of the house was uh, never go into the closet where his, you know his music lived. You know, I never touched the stereo. And as a toddler, I broke the rules, got my butt kicked quite a few times. You know, so in a wonderful reverse sort of way, my dad taught me the importance of vinyl by constantly reprimanding me. I have stronger words, but we'll just use reprimand. The thing was, I had this, uh, this, this extreme concern for for the brown box that lived in the living room and anything electrical. Like I was taking a unscrewing like the table radio, the television and the hair dryers and everything in the house. You know, I had four sisters that totally hated my guts. You know, so my passion probably came from trying to figure out this brown head that had two teeth and you put it in and it makes things light up. So that there just totally created this, this, this fetish with me. And um, uh, once I got to understand that music lived in the black tunnels, which is on the vinyl, you know, by taking one of my mother's uh, sewing needles, turning the stereo on and placing the needle inside, placing it on the vinyl and felt the vibration, you know, through my fingertips. And from that point on, I was pretty much, oh, the music lives in the black tunnels. So from that point on, it was getting my butt kicked, <laughs> playing with the stereo, getting my butt kicked, messing with the stereo, getting my butt kicked until I, you know, became of uh, age and my mother sent me to vocational technical high school in Durham. From there, I started to understand what AC and DC was, solid state versus vacuum tubes, capacitors and resistors and resistor color code and what is Ohm's law, you know, and uh, stuff of that nature. So once I start to understand that, I could reapproach a turntable and um, uh, started coming up with my own terms, like talk theory, you know, uh, and 
coming up with objects like uh, uh, this thing called the wafer that would go on the metal platter and then a, on the metal platter would, you, the wafer would go and then the vinyl would go on top of the wafer so that I can move the record back and forth which was really a very important point. I did blasphemy, blasphemy things like marking the record with the crayon and um, that stuff there. So like that pretty much was sort of, some people called it rampage, I called it passion. I wanted just one particular area of these different genres of music and I knew that if I pick the tone arm up and put it down, the chances of me hitting that spot on the one, it's a million to one. So trying different ways to take duplicate copies of the record and just sort of hone in on that one particular area. After months of trying it different ways, I, I noticed that if I put a piece of felt on the metal platter and then put the, the vinyl on top of the uh, felt, I had the fluid, fluidity of moving it back and forth and then from that point on, uh, it was just a matter of me just creating the peekaboo system, which was called queuing later. Um, uh, now I can just go from Led Zeppelin to Queen to Michael Jackson to Sly and the Family Stone. Like, you know, I was playing some of the greatest drummers of all time, one behind another, on time to the beat, seamless. And not realizing that this seamless bed of music made it uh, energize the break dancers, the breakers, and they were able to do their routines on time. But Probably what was most groundbreaking is that now there was a, a bed of music for human beings to tell their story on, you know, and at this time, uh, this quick mix theory thing that I was doing was accompanied by, you know, human beings, male and females who spoke and they were, they were called, it was called MCN or freestyling, you know, over this uh, seamless bed of music today artists go into a recording studio and make a seamless bed of music and they talk on it and they call it rap. So, you know, it kind of makes me smile that I've I, I left the basic legacy of, of how it all works, you know, and uh, looking at Serato and Tractor and a lot of the digital DJ apps and although they call the points something different, it's still my science. How you mark it, how you cue it, where it is, and how you get to the next point, and you know, and uh, but it's wonderful to see that there are other geeks out there doing good things. But a lot of this stuff, I'm like, okay, I know where they got the start of that from. You know, I'm not mad at them. It's all good. I understand that at one point I was the driver of the wave. So now, in some cases, I'm the passenger and somebody else creates the wave, but I'm just looking and I'm just saying, you know, how can I get in with that and keep my integrity of what I do? You know, because it isn't always about me being the one to create it. Somebody else could have been. That's pretty much what I do. I just pay attention to the wave, you know, and being a scientist first, you know, that helps quite a bit, you know. Uh, I see things early and I just sort of incorporate it into what I'm doing. Grandmaster Flash was actually my introduction to hip-hop a long time ago when, it just, when he just started. 
And uh, we actually saw him at the NAMM show 2023, and uh, he was spinning some records uh, at the Pioneer booth, and uh, he had a huge and a very adoring crowd. Well said. That's awesome. What a great experience. So let's get back to the interviews. Next we hear from Grand Wizard Theodore, the inventor of the scratch. Well, how I created the scratch and um, where I created the scratch and where I took in the scratch, um, first thing is that um, when I first became a DJ, I had to um, pretty much uh, say to myself, if I want to be recognized as a DJ, I pretty much had to do something that nobody else was doing. Now, I'm the kind of person where I would sit down and watch what other DJs do and make sure I don't make the same mistakes because a lot of DJs make the same mistakes. And a lot of DJs don't understand that um, DJing is not only physical, it's also mental too. So um, in my, uh, my last year of high school, my principal played music through the loudspeakers in the lunchroom. So when you're in the lunchroom eating your, 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 your fish sticks or your, or, your, or your meatballs or meatballs and stuff like that, you know, my principal was playing this music in the, um, in the loudspeakers and, you know, people pretty much got tired of listening to the music. So a friend of mine that hung out with me every day um, asked my principal to let me make a cassette tape. So my principal said, okay, make a cassette tape. I'll listen to it, and then maybe I'll play it. That's just the kind of person he was. So I went home and tried to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. Now, in order for us to make a cassette tape back in the early days, we had to take a, um, a big boom box and put it in front of the speaker and press record. That's how we made all of our um, uh, 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 cassette tapes back in the early days. Now, we didn't have the technology that we have today. Um, the way these turntables are here, they, they like in battle style. And um, the way we had it back in the early days, we had a traditional style, which means that the whole, the whole turntable was just uh, facing you in the front. And the mixers that we used looked like big, giant microwaves. So it was like you got one big, giant microwave in the middle, and you got one turntable on that side, and you got the, the mixer in the middle, and then you got the other turntable on the other side. So both turntables were probably like seven, eight feet apart. So it was really crazy. So I went home to try to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. So I'm in the house. I'm, you know, I'm grooving to the, you know, to the cassette, cassette tape. And um, the music that we, we practiced on was in my mother's house. And I got the kind of mother where, you know, she doesn't raise her voice. She doesn't argue. She doesn't fuss. She just, she just starts singing like Mike Tyson. If the dishes ain't done, if the room is not cleaned up, got company in the house, and she said no company in the house, it was crazy. That's the way my mom's was, you know. I love her to death. So I'm in, I'm in the house, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm making my cassette tape, and I'm grooving and stuff like that. And the music was like really, really loud because I was trying to make the best cassette tape I ever made in my life. So I'm playing this record right here on my right side, and I'm holding the other record. Um, on my left, and um, I don't know, for some strange reason, um, this particular day, she came and she just bust in the room, and when she bust in the room, that look she had in her eyes, I was like, wow, I'm going to get a black eye before I get to finish my, my cassette tape. So anyway, she looked at me and said, listen, either turn the music down or turn the music off, and I was like, wow. So... 
the technology that we have today is um, our crossfaders go from left to right. Back in the early days, our crossfaders went up and down. So when my mother came in the room and startled me, um, both levers on the turntable went up at the same time, which means that I can hear both records at the same time. So the couple of minutes, which seemed like an eternity, um, her telling me to turn the music down, um, I was actually in the transition of, of um, mixing one record into the other. So I was holding the record and then um, doing a baby scratch. And as I was doing the baby scratch, I was turning the music down. My mom's left the room. I finished my cassette tape. And when I rewinded back and started listening to it, I can actually hear myself baby scratching. And I was like, wow, I can incorporate that into all the other things that I do as a DJ. So I practiced it another couple of days, another couple of hours, you know, different records, you know. It really didn't take me that long because um, as a DJ, um, everything that I did as a DJ was like advancing so much day by day. It's like day by day I found my skills as a DJ getting better and better and better and better. So when it came time for, um, for me to do it in the park, which was 63 Park, um, I lived on 169th Street in Boston Road, and we did block parties in, um, between 168 and 169 in Boston Road. And when it came to doing the block party, that's when I was able to display the scratch. Now, basically what I did was I took, um, I took your favorite record and just basically took a, 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 my favorite part of the record and just kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And it just electrified the crowd. The B-Boys started going crazy. Everybody in the park started, started going crazy. Everybody came up to the front of the turntables to try to find out what I was doing, and and the rest was history. I was 12 years old. It was in 1975, so it was it was just really cool, man. That that um that I was able to uh, make a contribution to um to an art form that that pretty much um was heard around the world, and I'm very happy to be a part of this 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 art form, this culture to be able to contribute something as important as, as the scratch. And I created another style um, called uh, needle dropping. Is when I um, actually take the needle and drop it in certain parts of the record and the record actually sound like it's looping. And how I created that um, was really crazy because I created the needle drop before I actually created the scratch. And by me doing that, um, once again, my mother, she had a, um, uh, a coffin in the house. It was a coffin slash radio slash television. So when you open up the coffin, you actually see the radio on the turntable. And in the front was, um, was the television. And I used to play the 45s on her, um, on her turntable. And when it got to the break part, I used to skip the break part back, not knowing that I was developing a style called a needle drop, and when I finally got on the turntables, the um the style was uh the style was already there. I mean, I have nothing but the most utmost respect to the to the earlier DJs, but as time went by, we um we took it to a different level, you know. Flash, uh, Africa Bambada, Jazzy J, myself, um, um DXT, um DJ Crazy Eddie. Um, you know, we uh, uh, red alert. You know, we we took DJing to a different level, and when the disco DJs were playing and when we were playing, it's like night and day. 
we were cutting and scratching and breaking records and stuff like that. And you look at our records, our records had all fingerprints and, and jello and, and barbecue sauce and, and ice cream and stuff on our records. And when you look at a, disc, a, a disco DJ's records, his records were nice and clean. They were wiped off. They had no fingerprints on them and stuff like that. So that's the difference between us and the disco DJs. We used to try to go to, to see the disco DJs, and, and they, they pretty much wouldn't let us inside their party because we didn't have no suit jackets on. Um, we didn't have no slacks and stuff like that. We were coming in bell bottoms and 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 and, and, and our colors and stuff like that. So it was it was a different world. And and when um, time went by and and people stopped listening to disco, all the disco DJs came into our world because our world was the was the world that was taken taking everything by storm. We never played records that was on the radio. We played um, um, uh, My Uncle, God bless him. He called that rebel music. Parliament Funkadelics, um, um, Sly and the Family Stones, um, George Clinton. Um, um, all this music was rebel music. James Brown. Um, it was rebel music. It was music that made everybody go crazy. Music that made everybody think about, about the neighborhoods that we live in. Um, 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 all the abandoned buildings around and stuff like that. Um, uh, people singing about uh, um, um, New York looking like a war zone and people getting killed and stuff like that. That's the kind of music we played because it was a way for us to express ourselves. We were we were screaming for for people to to to, to notice us. That's why people say that that hip hop came from nothing because. We were sitting around looking at an abandoned building saying, you know, what can we do to, to take our mind off of this stuff? So we were uh, um, painting on the trains because we were trying to express ourselves. Uh, we were in the park b-boying because we need to release some tension. Um, we were uh, um, MCs trying to turn our thoughts into words so people can understand what's going on in our life and what's going on in the lives of everybody else that lives around us. And then you got the DJ that was trying to um, play the rebel music to try to get everybody to, to, to listen and band together and, 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 and the revolution will never be televised, stuff like that, you know? So that's why, um, you know, um, being a part of this culture, being a part of this, 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 um, this art form, means so much to me and it's amazing because some of these stories they feel like folklore mm, <laughs> in terms of that's true. in terms of you know the the genesis of them but um hearing how he he came up with the scratch you know in terms of that accidental moment when his mom was screaming and came in <laughs> and, and whatnot is is pretty uh amazing especially when you think about the impact that it has in terms of hip-hop and djing and and the expression of it and whatnot and how something that seemingly was a mistake becomes such a dynamic piece of the culture. Without a doubt. Well said. Absolutely. And he tells it with such flair. I just absolutely love listening to him. He, he is great. And speaking of great, another guy I really enjoy listening to is up next. Uh, let's hear uh, from Cool DJ Red Alert. I got into it around 76. Uh, like I said, I was in high school, and um, I was in this program called the Upward Bound Program, and that's a program where when you spend time during your junior and senior year, you're living on a college campus preparing yourself for college. 
So I was staying on Fordham University campus. And um, once again, being influenced by what I was seeing, I would go ahead and join right along with my roommate. And we both had stereo systems that we had find a way how to hook up our system and make it into one. So what we did, we had like a regular, you know, electrophonic uh, receiver. And, but, you know, instead of having just a turntable you plug in, you also had the auxiliary. So we also learned how to plug in turntable auxiliary. So we call ourselves time DJ. You finish one and click over to the other and continue sounds. That's, I think, influenced me doing that. So then afterwards, when I went to um, went away to college for a year and a half, I took up communication engineering, and I got my third class license. And by the time I came back, I saw a whole new slew of different DJs. I only did like a year and a half in college, but within that quicker time, as I was away, here come a new slew that came right behind Herc. Folks like who? Folks like Flash, uh, rest in peace, AJ. Um, it was a group called the L Brothers, where Grand Richard Theodore come from as the youngest. Uh, for me, a guy named Smokey. On the other side of the Bronx, you had Africa Bambada, you had um, Disco K Mario. I mean, the list is long, so many is that probably a lot of people will never get to hear about them, you know, in all different parts of the Bronx. But um, that was the wave that was going. Well, how I got my name because I, I, I was known for playing basketball. And uh, within my style of play, you know, and I was very frail, skinny, with a big old red afro. And my friend by the name of Dennis gave me that name, Red Alert. And uh, it just stuck on. And then when I got into DJing, I gave that name, DJ Red Alert. But at the same time, I got along with everybody. So as I got along with everybody, they like, yo, man, you should add something to it. So i never forget this. It was one day I saw Herc in the Bronx. And I walked up to him. And I said, yo, I'd like to know, because it was at that time then, you had to have permission. You just can't go ahead and take somebody's title. You got to ask permission. That is, you know, what we say street code street rules, or you did it, you'd be considered biting. And i say, hey, I started DJing, but I'd like to know, can I call myself cool? So he took time, looking around, he looking at me, looking around. You know, he, Herc have his ways about how he go about moving. Then he like, yeah, go ahead, man, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And that's where I add cool, DJ Redmond. See, you coming from an urban environment, we always had learned to make something out of nothing. We learned to be self-creative. We learned to, instead of being so stuck onto what we see normally goes on, that we wanted to take a form and create it into our own. So that's where we went after sounds that was different from what you normally hear. We went, you had dancers that was always learning to be creative and put in their footwork different from what you saw the others do. You saw uh, even in the earlier days before the music came in, graffiti always took place. I think graffiti really took place around even mid to late 60s going to the 70s. 
So you had a lot of graffiti artists that was coming hanging out at Cool Herc Cafes. But you know, the music that they listening to, which is the hip hop sounds, influenced them to be more creative than what they was projecting, you know. So I think we always learn how to just dabble in different things and, and build on it. That's what we did. To see people actually using turntables as an instrument in a studio, but seeing how you can EQ it to precisely for the recording preference. And um, it was like, to the producers, this is still new to them. Remember, they had just already got adjusted to the synthesizer days. You know, the electronics days coming from the instrument. So now here come another part, which has come become the turntables. So they're like, well, how does that work? And you, we have to explain it to them how you could hook up not just the turntables, but also a mixer. They said, why do we need a mixer? I say, because that's what we use in control to what we do with the turntable. Of course, it was hard to explain it, but we had to demonstrate it for them to see it for themselves. And what we were using more than one turntable. There were some people that were just using one turntable for scratching purpose, but there was other people that were using turntables of mixing from one to the other or how they was proceeding and cutting up the, the music. So it was interesting at that time. And I remember it like in the beginning of my show, it'd be like maybe the first 20 minutes and then there was still some rap artists that still had some Caribbean sounds like um, Heads and Dread by um, Special Ed, um, my man Shinehead, uh, you know, it's quite a few of them. So I just kept on pushing that. So we last heard from Cool DJ Red Alert, and that concludes this podcast. I think we all had a really good time. Um, I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. Kendrick, thank you so very much to give your insights. Uh, it's uh, fascinating. Well, thank you all for having me. I think this is a great uh, experience, and I appreciate the fact that um, the history and the culture of hip-hop is being celebrated in so many different spaces. Right on. Thank you so much, Kendrick. What a pleasure it is to have you here. Hopefully you'll come back for the other episodes in this series. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.